Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Banana Bag Podcast. A banana bag is another name for an IV medication. It's given to kind of be a super boost for your body because it's full of nutrients and other things. In the same way, we want this podcast to be a super boost for you, empowering both healthcare professionals and patients, but also anyone interested in learning more about our healthcare system. We also want to bring more awareness to their experiences. My name is Laura, and I'm really excited to bring you today's episode. I'm speaking with Vince. He's an ICU nurse in Michigan. He does have a few years of experience on a med surge floor, but he's a new ICU nurse. So it's really great to hear his perspective on the ICU. He tells us what it's like to be an ICU nurse. He also gives a lot of tips for patients or family members in the ICU. And he has some pretty funny stories. Follow us on social media at the Banana Bag Podcast or visit our website to find out some more information, including ways to support us, thebananabagpodcast.com. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode, and don't forget to listen to the end, where I share a fun fact with you about this recording. Today, I'm speaking with Vince from Michigan. He's not only a nurse, but also a longtime friend of my husband and I. He has been a nurse for a little over three years. He started out in med surge on an orthopedic floor and has recently switched to the cardiothoracic ICU. All right, Vince, is there anything I missed? Nope, I think that sounds good. I kind of talked about your background. Can you tell me exactly what is a cardiothoracic ICU nurse or what you do? Yeah, yeah. So so basically what we do is uh, we manage a critically critical patient in need of uh, cardiac support. A couple ways we can get that support are through devices, through medication, through certain therapies, but more often than not, we do uh, use devices. So those devices might include an Impala, a balloon pump, a VAD, ventricular assisted device. Patients, depending on their contractility and their issues, they might need a ECMO, whether VV or VA ECMO. And then obviously, just like any ICU, we do perform CRRT if their renal function isn't where it should be. So those are just a lot of devices to replace your organs if they're failing. Definitely. <laughs> definitely. It was very new. It was very new for me as well. Going into that environment, there were definitely like an Impala I've never heard of before, um, you know, and just other things like that. It was all a brand new concept. Were you nervous about switching over to the ICU from MedSurge? I was in a way. I definitely wanted to wait before going to the ICU versus going in as a new grad, just because I wanted to get my feet wet as a nurse, you know, try to learn how to time manage to the best of my abilities, how to pass meds in an efficient manner, and then communication with all the uh, interdisciplinary teams, as well as doctors and, you know, people that you might be intimidated talking with. So I definitely wanted to wait. And I'm glad I did because it was uh, my first day on the floor. I shadowed a couple of experienced nurses and just what they were saying, what they were explaining, uh, what they were doing uh, for patients. It was definitely like, whoa, I this is a brand new ball game, brand new environment, brand new everything. So definitely glad to have that experience. But I know a lot of new grads that have gone straight into the ICU and uh, they're, they're definitely good at what they do as well. Yeah, it's just kind of a steeper learning curve. Yeah, for sure. So I did some research before this and I saw on a paper, a research paper that an ICU nurse completes about 178 tasks per day per patient. Would you say that's true or do you think it's more or less? I think that's true and maybe even more. It depends on the it depends on the shift and it depends on the night and how your patients are, but if you get a single patient, especially if they're back post transplant, that's a very tasky assignment where hmm. You know, you obviously you set up all your IVs, you make, you untangle that spaghetti mess. I say spaghetti in quotations because that's what everyone refers it to as <laughs> all the IVs, um, which, of course, when they come back from the OR, anesthesia has them everywhere. So it's never an, an organized uh, situation. 
I remember when I was in the PICU that every time they came back from the OR, we had to untangle the mess. Yes, yes. I mean, it can still get confusing. So you definitely want to trace that back to the actual IV pump and back to the actual bag mm-hmm. uh, to you know ensure that safety is is there. Because sometimes, yeah, you, you do find an error. But yeah, so it, it's it's getting the IVs untangled. It's setting up the monitors, uh, the flow track, the Philips monitor. It's logging into that patient, opening up their chart, getting report from the anesthesiologist and and others who were uh, present in that case, mm. grabbing blood sugars, grabbing labs off their A-line, which usually the techs will do that. But if they're busy, you know, then it's up to you. And then, you know, just re- obviously, you know, after a while doing all the repositioning, all the in- ensuring everything is where it needs to be, leveling your hemostatic device for your pressure bags and, and all that stuff. So it's a very timely and what's sort of, yeah, very tasky situation. So yeah, it. It takes a lot of your physical energy, but I also think it takes a lot of your mental energy because For sure. I I saw I was reading this other paper that talks about how um, they think that people that work in healthcare mess up about 1% of the time right now. Even if you have 178 tasks per day, that's like almost two mistakes per patient per day. For and sure. like that's you have to be really on your mental game because any mistake mistakes can often be life threatening even if you miss like a slight med calc or something like that so not only is it physical stress but also a lot of mental energy oh that that's you're absolutely right and actually going back to my first day on the floor i i would actually say for that first week especially having all of your critical care classes i wasn't necessarily physically drained but i was definitely mentally exhausted mm-hmm. um and i had never really and maybe in nursing school i had a couple you know clinicals that i felt that way uh, maybe obviously a couple class periods that are just super in depth and you need to really go over that material again but I had never really experienced that physical, or I'm sorry, that mental exhaustion like when I started at the uh, in the ICU. Yeah, I always think it's interesting to talk to people who have switched from med surge to ICU. I mean, with the career in nursing, you can work in such different fields. Like you could work L and D, or like you did, you could go med surge to ICU. And I think it would be helpful for nurses when they start in the hospital to like float to another nurse's floor, like the floors that they're most going to be interacting with, just to like gain perspective and it's probably an ER nurse thing but I feel like there's a lot of judgment between nurses <laughs> like between med surge versus ICU versus ER so when you were a med surge nurse like what was your view of ICU nurses like did you did you kind of know or did you think it was something completely different yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I, I kind of think back to all of these, uh, you know, famous meme pages, and uh, they do talk about that relationship between ER and ICU, and how neither are fans of each other. And then ER versus med surge, and med surge mm-hmm. versus ICU. So it's definitely a thing that I think all of us nurses are aware of. As far as me personally. Uh, Going from med surge to ICU, I didn't really have any preconceived notions of, uh, oh, that's an ICU nurse. <laughs> Obviously, I had it from a med surge nurse because that's what I was. And I would see memes between ER and med surge, uh, like never <laughs> wanting to uh, call and get report from a patient coming yeah. up or asking about skin and ER people don't check skin and just, you know, funny things like that. But as far as the ICU, I, I really haven't had any like, oh, that's an ICU nurse type thing. Well, I guess the the one thing that I might have thought of is you take care of patients that are there for, you know, months on end and, you know, due to the condition uh, they're there for, you know, they might be uh, very unhealthy, they might be obese, they might be, you know, physically uh, exhausting in that sense, uh, you know, due to weight and backs and, 
you know, everybody that always, you know, struggles mm-hmm. with those mechanical issues. And so that was kind of, it wasn't like an LTAC sense, like what you see in an LTAC home where people are still vented, but they're long-term care, but it was something similar to that. Mm-hmm. And so since being, you know, since I've been in the ICU, it's definitely been, it's definitely been some of that, but there's a lot more turnover than I think people really do realize. Oh, so patients don't stay there as long. Absolutely. And uh, and like I said, you might get you might get a couple people that have been there for, you know, 3, 4 months, maybe 5 months even, mm-hmm. but it is rare and most of the time those rooms do turn over quite fast from discharging them, you know, to progressive floors or uh, unfortunately if if the patients do end up passing. So I didn't I didn't really think about that that would be a major difference because yeah, the turnover rate in the ER is insane. So just like under just understanding turnover rate, I think would be a huge help between nurses. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. But I want to know, like personally, as an ER nurse, what do you what do you think about ER nurses? And and be honest, you can be honest. So, like I said, other than like what you see in the memes, where there's just this, you know, butting of heads essentially, yeah. <laughs> uh, where you know you think ER nurses get it nice and easy sometimes, and they think. ICU nurses get it easy sometimes. That's kind of the preconceived notion. But like I mentioned, I I really haven't had that much interaction between ER nurses. Um, oh, okay. I just I really haven't had those types of crash and burns yet. You know, I'm fairly new there, so oh, that's obviously true. a crash and burn patient they're going to give to a more experienced person. Yeah. Because um, I've I've been off orientation for about th- uh, two months now, or somewhere around there. How's it going um, so far? So so far it's it's been good. They definitely try to lighten your load. They don't want to mm. over they don't want to bear you down with these very critical complex cases. So usually we will get two patient assignments. Most likely they are post surgical patients, so they either have a transplant, either heart or lung, or they have their VAD put in place. And so we just manage that type of care. It sounds intense. What percentage of your patients are sedated, do you think? So like I said, it depends on the shift. I I mean, just because it is the ICU, I I would probably say 50-50. Oh, okay. I thought it would be higher than that. Yeah. You have days where almost no one, except for a few rooms, this is a 22-bed unit, Okay. uh, the cardiothoracic ICU is. And so you'll have times where, you know, maybe, I don't know, anywhere from five to 10 patients might be sedated, you know, on certain days. Then you have days where, you know, 75% of the floor is sedated and invented. So it it definitely depends on the, you know, the procedures, you know, maybe which surgeons are on vacation and what surgeries aren't being done and, you know, things like that. So I I know that when COVID uh, broke out, you know, pretty much all the surgeries were canceled. Oh, yeah. uh, transplant and I think even VAD surgeries. So the census was very, uh, the normal census was very low in that sense because, you know, those surgeries weren't being performed. So, yeah. Speaking of COVID, have you taken care of anyone that's been diagnosed positive yet? Um, Me personally, no. I've had uh, neighboring rooms uh, to my patients that have had it. But yeah, I, I personally have not had to deal with that yet other than the gowning up and un, and all that fun stuff for patients that are being tested for it. Oh yeah, being um, ruled out. Obviously those eventually came back negative, but you know, when you don't know they're negative, you'd still go through the same method and, and all that stuff. Yeah. So the next thing I wanted to talk about, um, kind of things really specific to your career in nursing. I don't know if you knew, but less than 10% of nurses are male. And I definitely have seen like my guy friends that are nurses, even if it's like a small comment or something, like there's a lot of discrimination there. 
So what do you what do you feel about being a nurse as a guy? And has anything ever like happened because of that or been associated with that? Yeah. So I, I've actually listened to a couple podcasts uh, before of nurses who are now in their DNP program, but they had talked about their experiences as well. And, and I can kind of attest to some of it. Um, although some of it I have not had to experience, but the the one thing that they mentioned, and I have uh, felt this before, is usually guys will get the heavier patients, you know, patients that are two, three hundred pounds, maybe even more, um, and and you know, you're going to be turning them, you're going to be doing the majority of the care on that. Yeah. Um, and and I speak right now as a med surge nurse because I haven't necessarily experienced that as an ICU nurse yet. Mm-hmm. But as a med surge nurse, yeah, usually you would get those or you would get the more combative patients. Oh, um, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, certain things like that. Whether I care or not, I really don't. To me, it's just another assignment. And and I would probably rather that get hit than have one of my female coworkers get hit. Oh, that's um, nice of you. You know. Well, thank you. <laughs> but yeah, I, like, so th- things like that have, you know, generally been what I've experienced, but it really hasn't been to a, a negative level where, you know, every time I come in, I get, you know, the crap assignment, in, in other words. I always heard my guy friends say like, oh, we get asked for help a lot, but I never thought about them just being assigned it from the get go. But I could totally see that happening. Yeah, no, th- I mean, that is definitely true. I mean, I'll, I'll have techs or uh, female nurses come up to me and say, hey, I need your muscles in about five minutes, you know, for something like that. And and again, I have I do not care about that. But that is definitely something that, you know, they wouldn't uh, tell their female CNAs or female. Yeah, I don't uh, think nurses. I've ever had anybody tell me I need to eat your muscles a second. <laughs> <laughs> Probably because they don't exist, but you know. <laughs> One thing I hear a lot is that guy nurses, when they walk in the room, like a lot of times the patients assume that they're the doctor. Have you ever had yes. that? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Does it happen a lot? Um, it Again, because most of my patients are sedated now, oh, yeah. uh, I haven't really noticed it at the uh, the ICU that I am at now, but definitely on med surge, especially if you have a confused, demented, elderly patient, they will definitely speak of you as the doctor. But I mean, like I said, it, they don't have to be demented. I've had patients that are not that, you know, that are fairly young and, uh, you know, alert learned times four, and they will still say, oh, you're the doctor, right? Or things like that. So you're absolutely right. That is definitely a, a trait that has, it's still alive. <laughs> In other words, it's still going. So uh, that's never happened to me. So yeah, I definitely think that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm not surprised. That's an assumption people make. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And actually this is another med surge versus ICU topic as well. Overwhelmingly med surge has female nurses. Oh yeah. Um, the floor I was on, I think we had a total of three male nurses for that 24 bed unit. Oh, wow. Right now, right now in the ICU, I would definitely say it's 50-50. Oh, wow. That's cool. Uh, There's a, there's a lot more males I work with now. And I think that kind of also speaks to, uh, that's just the field males generally go in the ER, uh, the ICU. I think the ER too. There's usually a lot of guys in ER. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So I think that speaks a lot to it as well. You asked, you asked me a question and I completely forgot before I went off on that tangent. I know. I, I forgot where we started, but that's okay. <laughs> it's good. Um, one more thing I wanted to ask you about the ICU. I wanted to talk about like tips we might have for family members who have like family in the ICU or friends in the ICU. And I would say my top two tips would be to take a notebook and like write everything down that the doctor, the nurse says or whoever says it. 
And like, even if you don't understand it, just write it down so you can like look it up later or ask about it. I think that would be one tip. And then my second one would be like, you should probably like designate a family member or a specific friend to be like the central person that communicates to the doctor and the nurse, because there can be lots of different like channels of communication. And it's good to like streamline it into one person. So you're getting like, you know, you're like, not hearing it like telephone like through four yeah no for sure yeah no for sure for sure yeah so I was wondering if you had any other tips for like family members who of ICU patients so I I would definitely agree with that point uh yeah have a centered person uh to which they get all the information on and then they can pass it around because and you probably work in the you know, working in ER, you've seen this as well, but you know, you might tell a family member this, 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 this is going on with the patient. You might spend five to 10 minutes telling them that 30 minutes later, you get a phone call from another family member. And it's like, you have to repeat the same old thing because maybe those family members aren't talking either uh, for whatever, uh, you know, issues that they might have going on. So it, it, you're absolutely right. It's definitely wise to have that point person that we can go to and communicate. Like you were saying, that also helps the nurse because with their 178 or whatever task, it's good to just like not interrupt them so often. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And then going back to your other point about the notebook, that is so essential to uh, or for family members to have because it does a couple things. Like you mentioned, they can write everything down. It, it's a very overwhelming time period mm-hmm. for families and friends. You know, their their loved one is essentially on uh, death's door. And, you know, hopefully we can get that reversed, but it's a very critical time and it's a very overwhelming time. And, you know, during that fight and flight response, we're not going to necessarily sit back and take in everything that is said to us. Our, our mind is going 100 miles an hour. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you're right. It, it's crucial for them to uh, write down everything that's going on. But then the other flip side to that, too, is for them to keep a diary of what happened on every single day is absolutely mm. important for the patient as well. Because because hopefully when that patient wakes up and they're off their probe, they're off their fentanyl drip, they're off uh, any other ICU sedation meds, they can go back and read through those days to help with that timeline because essentially you've just uh, you know smeared out you know two three oh, yeah. weeks you know maybe even longer depending on what their issue is so for them to be able to understand you know time went on and things happened for them to be able to understand what exactly happened is critical in their recovery as well. That's a really good point just to like mentally oh. know that oh something did happen on Sunday like Sunday existed exactly. <laughs> That's a really good point. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I was just going to say, as far as any other tips, it it is smart to know what patients do like and what they don't like, you know, music-wise, movie-wise, because while you are sedated, you still can have recollection of what's going on. That's so crazy. Um, And it, it really is crazy. Yeah. I mean, there's stories of people that have been off sedation and they are months out of recovery and they still have images of... A, uh, of a doctor or a nurse coming in and, you know, things like that. In fact, one of my instructors, uh, our educator, actually, she said that when she was an ICU nurse, one of her patients came back and he kept saying something about an egg walking around in the room. And at first she kind of blew it off, didn't really understand. But then when she saw the doctor that took care of him, she understood because this doctor was bald. And with the lights shining and everything, that's the appearance he gave. So it, it's funny and it's it's just crazy. Because, oh my gosh, that's hilarious. Yeah, and it's crazy because like he was still being sedated. He was still able to pick that imagery up. So it, it's I always like knowing from family members 
you know, what kind of music they like, because we'll definitely play that. We'll definitely have uh, TV on if they love watching uh, baseball, if they love watching the History Channel or anything, we'll have those on uh, for sure. And I say that because I actually had a patient the other day, and if they're vented and usually uh, agitated, obviously we'll have them in soft restraints, but then we'll put on like the beds we have, the striker beds have playlists. So you can have like jazz, you can have classical music, you can have nature sounds like a, a brook running and things like that. Well, I just turned his bed on to help him, you know, to help calm him down. And it just happened to be on the classical uh, music uh, channel. And his wife came in in the morning and about mid-morning, the day shift nurse told me this, but about mid-morning, she came out and said, can you please shut this off? Like, he does not like this music. <laughs> and so it's like, oh, shoot. I mean, that's definitely fine. We'll definitely turn it off. But it would have been nice to know that. Yeah. And I understand that that's not something, you know, your loved one is in the hospital. That's not something you're going to think automatically to. That's not pertinent information. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, but it is good for us to know. Yeah, that's also why it's good for family to be there. Just to like those small things can mean mm -hmm. so much. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I wanted to talk about another thing like between communication between patients and like the healthcare staff. I'm going to give you a scenario. So if the nurse is doing something and the patient's family member doesn't necessarily know if that's the best thing for the patient, because obviously the patient and the family have like known the patient for so long. How would you recommend that a patient family member would approach a member of like the healthcare team if they want to like question to see if that's the right thing to do. Because I know patients question things a lot. And I know a lot of stories about like medical errors that have happened and patient family members like knew, but they were like scared to say something. So like what, what would you say to a patient family member who wanted to approach like the nurse and, and kind of like question something? Yeah, absolutely. So I, actually, I think of Josie's story, which I don't know if you had to read that book. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. So I definitely think of that, you know, uh, the mother knew that her baby was not getting water and looked dehydrated and was sucking at a, a wet cloth when she was getting a bath, things like that. Those, those are definitely red flags. And obviously she kept her mouth shut because, oh, the doctor knows what he's doing. The nurses know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. um, and that's definitely a, a common, I don't want to say misconception because for the most part, we do, but there's a lot of things that can be easily overlooked. So as a rule of thumb, I always tell them to talk to me, you know, let me know what's going on. If you see something that you're not understanding, please ask questions, please bring it up because yeah, maybe it is an oversight. Maybe it's something we missed. So the, the way to do that, obviously, and I'm sure you have had plenty of experience with this, but mm -hmm. the way to do it is not to obviously come at them screaming, <laughs> yeah. um, but to approach in a calm manner and, you know, let us know, hey, my loved one was doing this, this, and this on this day, and now they're not. And I see that they started this medication. Is there a correlation? You know, things like that. If it's done in that manner, I think that's very wise. And we want them to speak up. We want them to yeah. uh, let us know what they are seeing as well. An extra set of eyes does not hurt at all. So, And I think sometimes nurses can get in maybe a bad mood or if they're having a bad day with their patients and the family member says something and she doesn't feel like she was heard. I would recommend to that family mm -hmm. member, you can go to any other nurse on the floor and bring it up. Like mm -hmm. if you think something's wrong, mm -hmm. don't be scared to like talk to another nurse because your nurse might just be having a bad day. And even if that creates a bad relationship, like safety is what really matters for your loved one. And it's okay to like go to another nurse, any nurse you see on the floor or just bring it up, ask to talk to the charge nurse about something. Like the nurse might not be happy about it, but 
safety matters the most with your loved one. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And and that's why we're there. You know, that's why we're nurses. We're there yeah. because patient safety does matter and we want their complete health uh, to return. You know, as a new grad and then as a, a newbie, essentially in an ICU, I definitely want that. Um, I, I, I've had patients that they might have gone into RV, uh, AFib RVR, but they've kind of been tacky all night and they've got other issues that I, I'm dealing with, you know, hemo, hemodynamic issues. Uh, yeah. Uh, and so to have another nurse come up and say, hey, you know, maybe let's contact the provider um, because I'm in that task mode. You know, I'm, oh, yeah. naps dipping, you know, let me. 178 tasks, got to check them <laughs> exactly. And and I'm focusing on, oh, hey, that map is dipping. Uh, let me uh, go up on the Norepi or something like that. But then to have that nurse come in and kind of say, hey, you know, let's, I think that we're not going to, you know, uh, fix it this way. Let's let the provider know. And maybe we need an amio bolus or something like that. Yeah. Uh, in which case, that's essentially what happened. Uh, so to have another nurse look in, that's huge. Uh, you know, as an experienced nurse on the med surge floor, if I had a family member come up to me about another nurse's room and this nurse may happen to be newer, there's things that I have caught uh, that helped out that nurse. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it's not a bad idea to have, you know, people double check and make sure that what you're doing is safe and it is right. Uh, in other words. So it is important to listen to them. And like you said, the way nurses, and I've seen techs as well, the way they treat family will definitely, it can either go good or bad. Uh, Yeah. I also think that goes the other way where how family treats the nurses kind of affects like how they'll listen to the family later if they have concerns, which good or bad, it happens. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Dang. It's crazy, crazy nurse life. It is. It is. (laughs) And they said it would be fun. (laughs) I'm joking. It is fun. You definitely have your good days. Yeah, did they lie? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. You have your good days and you have your not so good days. (laughs) That leads us perfectly into the next thing. So I wanted to talk about like wellness as a nurse. And Mm -hmm. after you have those bad days, think back to the the worst shift you've ever had. I'm sure you can remember it. Mm -hmm. So think back. And then when you got home, like what do you do after your worship? So I, I probably wouldn't be the most therapeutic response because um, <laughs> I might have had a beer and went to bed. <laughs> so you know that's okay. Um, yeah, I mean for me it was, and I don't. A lot of us have beers in the shower. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That works too. Yeah, so for me, I, I probably need to be more therapeutic. I, there was a point where I was consistent with exercise and running and working out, and then obviously you have your long stretches, and at the end of those stretches of work, you don't feel like doing that, and then I don't. So unfortunately, I kind of fall off of that routine that I used to be on. Mm -hmm. But I know that that's very therapeutic, Uh, exercising, meditating, maybe not so much the alcohol, (laughs) although I I definitely think sometimes we do need that. Yeah. But as far as me personally, it's really, I mean, I talked with you. I think talking to other nurses is a good thing. Yeah, I I agree. I talked to my sister. Uh, I talked to my wife, who's also in healthcare. And I, I think that that communication, even venting to other nurses that you work with, I think is Definitely, it's therapeutic. Just someone who understands. So, yeah, those are just some things I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's hard to uh, you know go to someone like it's hard to go to someone like my mom and describe what I just uh, had happen and what I saw and everything. And it's hard for her to fully grasp it. To her, it's probably just another story, and and it's hard because yeah, they don't understand the uh, detail of what went down in that patient's room with that treatment with Mm -hmm. you know that conversation with a doctor that went uh way off so yeah it's definitely good and i I, that's something that i really struggled with having a spouse that's not in healthcare is like i would come home from my shift and he would be like oh like how was your day and 
I just like didn't even know what to yeah. say because it's kind of one of those things where you had to be there <laughs> and if or you have to like know the situation if you don't know it there's like no way to explain yeah. but one thing yeah. I did find that I was thankful for is coming home and like just having to forget about it and not taking yes. your work home with you is that yes I don't talk about it with him so I just forget about it and if I need to talk to someone I do like text you or tell you about something that mm -hmm. happened but I think it's it's both good and bad I don't know there's positives and negatives to everything so there are I and, think it was good. and yeah I think for the most part I really don't talk to anybody and I don't know if that's good or bad I don't really let it linger. That's like, good. I think that's good. I, I don't know. I, I just, I kind of go home and I might think about it the next day and then I'm done. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm not saying like I'm special. I'm just saying that's kind of how I am. Um, the things that really irritate me, there was, which actually still does irritate me. <laughs> there was a communication uh, issue I had with a doctor about using insulin with a patient who had low blood sugar. And he, he just frankly wrote back to me that if he doesn't get this insulin, he will die of DKA. And to me, it's like, okay, but he's had low blood sugars. And sure enough, that next morning, I found out that he had a very low blood sugar again. And it was just the way you are treated uh, can irritate you. And I was very mm -hmm. irritated by that. So I vented to like <laughs> at least five different people about that scenario because it, it just made me mad because it was like, he treated me like an idiot. I did the right thing, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. <laughs> I think a lot of times in nursing, you just yes. need people to yes. confirmation, some confirmation definitely. bias that what you're doing <laughs> <Definitely> is right. <laughs> <useful>. <laughs> yeah. Last thing I wanted to talk about is what is your plan for, well, you don't have to have a plan, obviously, but if you have a plan for the rest of your career, what are you thinking about? CRNA school? Definitely. So to become a CRNA, you do have to be in an ICU for at least a year. There is not any preference on an ICU, although generally... Those that work in a cardiovascular ICU tend to go on to school and they're accepted. Mm. Uh, I know NICU is generally frowned, not frowned upon, but not as accepted. But oh, I see. Other than that, other ICUs, if, if you have experience with monitoring patients, uh, sedating them, using certain monitors that we don't normally use, like a BIS for somebody who's deeply sedated, using the train of four if they're paralyzed, things like that, they, they want that experience as well as the experience of dealing with uh, hemodynamic issues, you know, dealing with uh, hyper and hypotensive drugs. That's what they really search for. So for the most part, you can have those types of uh, patients in any ICU. Um, I think it's definitely more common to have them in a cardiothoracic ICU because, you know, everything that's involved with, uh, with the heart. Mm -hmm. But any ICU, you can definitely have that in. And that's what they want at least a year, even two to five years is preferred. Because they want you feeling very confident with, you know, dealing with that stuff. Yeah, I see. So they're switching CRNA from a master's to a doctorate soon, right? Yeah. So I, I believe it's 2023 that they are going to, to make that transition from a, DN, yeah, a master's to a DNP program. Every program has to be that way. Yeah. That's a big jump. That's a big step. It is. It is. And I mean, I kind of go back and forth on it. I, I, I think, I don't know if I've had this uh, conversation with you before, but I, I know I've had it with other nurses. And it, it does seem like the general flow, the, the general idea of any, I mean, this can go from nursing to physical therapy to occupational therapy to maybe respiratory, but definitely seems like more schooling is required. Yeah. Um, I believe to be a physical therapist, you have to have a master's now, or maybe it's even a doctorate. Yeah. I don't know if you can confirm that, but it definitely seems like we are going in a direction where more schooling is 
required for a certain task that... So in, in other words, CRNA with a master's can definitely do what a CRNA with a DNP can do. You know what I mean? Yeah. I know with DNP, you do more research. You have to defend a certain research that you do. So there's a lot more involved in that. And I can definitely see a benefit to it. But that, yeah. Yeah. So that just, instead of going from 24 month program, you can now go to 36. Yeah. Um, I think some of my friends are doing a doctorate, like just started a doctorate program now just because they don't want to like, like be behind everybody else. But I do have some people that are starting just as masters to get out of the way. But I, yeah. I think it's because our scope of practice is expanding True. so much. Like, and especially for nurses, I feel like we do like we can do a little bit of what like almost any specialty does. I don't know if you feel like that, but I feel like that in the ER. So I, it makes sense that they're increasing the schooling just because our yeah, no. practice is. And that's that's actually a very good point. And going back to CRNA, um, th- there's definitely a movement. There's definitely lobbyists in Washington that are trying to uh, get it to where CRNAs can practice independently in every single state. Um, oh, wow. There are certain states where they accept that and there's some states that do not accept that and they have to be under an anesthesiologist. And so, like you said, because the scope of practice is getting so much uh, bigger, especially if you're going to start taking on that much more, I don't want to say acuity, but if if you're going to be taking on that specialized area, you should be confident and competent in in what that area deals with. So yeah, to be a uh, to have your DNP instead of a master's and to have your own independent practice. I think that's, I think that's smart. So yeah. All right. That, that was the end. What'd you think? I thought it was great. <laughs> yeah. I it, think, nice you, talking, I think it was it's better nice talking with another nurse about this stuff, you know? Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> oh, I just wanted to say thank you for doing this. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you for joining me today and have a great day. Thank you. You too. That was a really fun conversation. I really appreciate Vince sharing his side of things, especially being a new ICU nurse. Let me know what you guys thought of it and share with your friends if you think they might be interested in listening to it. All right, here's my fun fact. This was actually my first episode I ever recorded, so thank you to Vince for doing that for me. To end, don't forget to subscribe to be notified when new episodes are released. Thank you again for listening, and have a great day.